The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Gaed. I am the publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Our special guest for the hour, Luke Groman, who's the founder of Forest for the Trees. I'm sure many of you have seen him on Real Vision, and he's got a, a fantastic YouTube channel as well. So, Luke, I appreciate the time here. It's the first time you and I are talking. I was reviewing some of your recent media appearances, but let's set the stage for everybody that's joining here. Talk through who you are, your background, how you got involved in markets, and, and then we'll kind of get deeper into today's environment. Sure. Well, thanks for having me on, Michael. I'm uh, excited to be here today. Sort of the quick background on me. I started off in equity research, gosh, 27 years ago, I guess, at a small old line Cleveland money management firm called Ralston and Company. They had a small sell side business. I was an early employee of a small group of people that split off and formed a, uh, a regional brokerage firm called Midwest Research that was uh, a real pioneer in, in fundamental bottoms up channel checks. Early on in at Midwest, I began publishing a uh, weekly piece that basically aggregated the channel check bottoms up fundamental work that we were doing, married it with top down macro thematic sector reading I was doing on my own, and started sending it out every Friday to clients I was calling on for the firm. It began to spread by the ended up being very popular. We probably had five or 10,000 portfolio managers and analysts all over Wall Street around the world reading it within a few years. And so I just had a knack for connecting dots in a unique manner that helped clients of the firm in 2006 after we sold that firm to First Tennessee Bank in early 01. Myself in, in 20, 2006, excuse me, myself, about 20 other partners formed Cleveland Research Company, and we uh, were also doing in-depth bottoms-up fundamental research. I once again reprised my role as sort of a macro thematic slash uh, dot connector in a, in a weekly research aggregation piece for the firm's clients going into the 0708 timeframe. That piece proved very helpful for uh, a, a number of clients of the firm. In the aftermath of the 08 crisis, it became increasingly apparent to me that global central banks and, and governments were becoming more critical to driving markets. I began spending more and more of my time on macro and thematic work. Early 2013, I went to my partner, said I'd like to do this macro thematic thing full time. They said, we'd love to have you do that. I said, I have one caveat, and that is I want to have complete creative control to write whatever I want to write because I felt like that was going to be increasingly important because 
quite frankly, I thought things were going to get a lot weirder before they got less weird, a, a prediction that has been certainly very accurate. And from a marketing merchandising standpoint, it was just kind of hard to figure out how we would place such a product in their uh, bread and butter, which is they still do unbelievable bottoms up fundamental research. So we parted ways amicably in early 14. I hung on my own shingle as FFTT. And what I do is I aggregate large amounts of publicly available research in a unique manner, looking for what I call economic bottlenecks, where, where basically things are coming to a head and something's going to break one way or another, because it's been my experience that those are the areas where excess returns are earned. Perfect example I always use is, look, if you if you own the best home builder in 2005, congratulations, you only lost 95% of your money instead of 100% of it, right? Or the best subprime lender. And so sector uh, sector allocations is a very important driver of performance. And so I try to look at those sectors, connect the dots and look at those sectors that could be set to benefit or be hurt by these economic bottlenecks. So that's the the 60 or 90 second sort of background of, of that has brought me to where I am today. Yeah, no, it's great. It's interesting that you mentioned 2013, because I've often referenced that as sort of the year when, to your point, things got very weird. QE3 effectively broke the relationship of stocks to inflation expectations. And that's when I would argue we entered this kind of this environment where it just became about large cap S&P passive. It's really the marker when a lot of active stuff ended up not working. Is it fair to say that you think that bottom-up analysis is nowhere near as effective as it used to be because everything is so driven by liquidity now? The short answer is yes. I think if I always refer back to what I would call call it the 1995-96 time frame through probably probably that, you know, I would say 09 or 10 time frame as sort of the golden era I would say of of bottoms up fundamental alpha where there just was, you know, there was not, I think it was a combination of the amount of money chasing those strategies being smaller. I think information flow was less commoditized. You know, back then data was not as commoditized as it is. But then I also think when you layer on, you know, post 2009, 2010, I would say is really when that relationship started to break down between the fundamentals uh, driving asset prices and liquidity. And, you know, back at, at Cleveland Research, I remember we were trying to figure out, you know, because what we found was going into the 0708 timeframe, we, we had another team that was aggregating, basically ranking every data point we were bringing in. And it was either positive, neutral, or negative relative to prior trend. And then like an ISM index, right? A diffusion index, net those out against each other. And from the formation of Cleveland Research in 06 into about the 09, early 09 timeframe, there was a positive correlation between that diffusion index, fundamentals getting sequentially better across a wide array of the economy based on the bottoms up channel checks we were doing. When things were getting better, asset prices would rise. And when things were getting worse, the S&P would fall and, and the 10-year, you know, vice versa, right? When things were getting better, the 10-year yield was rising. And, and when things were getting worse, the 10-year yield was falling. And what was interesting is after 2009 or 2010, so if I remember right, what we found was when, when our data was getting worse, stocks were rising fast, stocks were rising. And when things were getting better, stocks were falling because of the expectation of more or less Fed QE I had, had inverted that relationship. So whether it was 2013 or I would say it was probably a little earlier than that, but I think this central bank liquidity dynamic began really breaking. What I think uh, for the prior 
you know, 15 years before that had been a very fundamental driven, very fundamentally driven markets. I think they became more liquidity driven at that point. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Yeah, it's not a quiz that yeah, since that time period, hedge funds have not produced much alpha, right? Because it's been essentially all sort of co-moving in the same way. So so talking about liquidity, I've heard you, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, Luke, I've heard you say that you're expecting the Fed's going to hike just twice before they reverse. Maybe I heard that wrong. But I am curious to hear your thoughts on the tightening cycle if you think it's an overreaction by the marketplace, if the Fed is really going to be able to get off zero in a in a sustained long-term way. What are your thoughts on that? My, my thoughts on that are, the short answers, I think, if you look at the, you know, where the yield curves are, et cetera, I mean, right now on the two, ta- I mean, you're, 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 you're looking like maybe they can get two rate hikes off before they invert it, right? So the markets are kind of saying, chew. That's not really, I guess, my, my ballywick in terms of, of what we do. I think from a bigger picture standpoint, it's fascinating, probably the biggest thing in macro that virtually nobody's talking about is the U.S. fiscal situation in the context of this Fed rate hiking cycle. And so it's been really fascinating to me to watch how many investors, how many people on Wall Street are treating this rate hike cycle like it's just like any other rate hike cycle in the last 30, 40, 50 years. And the reality is, is that if you look at the fiscal situation, it couldn't be more different. And and I think people are missing the context of you know, we had an equity bubble in 2000. And when it burst, they kicked the problem upstairs to the housing sector, right? As, as Paul McCulley and, and Paul Krugman famously said, you burn, Greenspan needs to create a housing bubble to paper over the demand loss from the bursting equity bubble. So we kicked the equity bubble upstairs to the housing and banking system. That bubble burst, of course, and, and we kicked that problem upstairs to the sovereign level as the, as the Fed and the government backstop stuff around the world. And then we had the COVID crisis on top of that, and which we again layered, we, we kicked that problem up to the sovereign debt level as well. And so now we've got a global sovereign debt bubble that we think is the first such global sovereign debt bubble in probably 100 years, probably since the aftermath of World War One. And so you're in this situation where most investors are looking at this rate hike cycle as if this global sovereign debt bubble doesn't exist. And a couple of statistics that, that that I keep coming back to that point to how different this cycle is versus prior. For example, the United States, as far as 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 I know, has not raised interest rates with U.S. debt to GDP at 122 percent in at least 70 or 80 years. At least another one: the U.S. deficit as a percent of GDP finished 2021. At twelve percent of GDP, we haven't. The Fed hasn't raised rates in the United States with deficits to GDP. I, I think much beyond two or three percent in at least forty, fifty years. Maybe and, and realistically, <laughs> since at least I mean again seventy or eighty years. And and the 
biggest dynamic to all of this, or one last data point, I guess I, I've been pointing out is this, this true, what we call true interest expense, the United States is true interest expense, which most people look at the debt and, and multi, it's, it's an oversimplified way of doing it. We do it too of, Hey, here's the debt. Here's the interest rate. Look, they have plenty of room to raise rates without getting into trouble. And what we've looked at is I've referred to as, as the money ball you know, the Moneyball way of looking at U.S. interest expense or true interest expense. And of course, if you're familiar with the movie Moneyball or the book, a great book by Michael Lewis, the, the, the point of the book is, is that the Oakland A's hacked the system by being able to pick up guys who walked a lot and not paying them a lot of money because a walk functionally the same as a hit. And the guys who walked a lot were undervalued relative to the guys who hit a lot. Okay. So in the same way that there is a no functional difference between a walk and a single, there's no functional difference between a dollar of interest paid by the Fed or paid by the U.S. government on Treasury debt and the entitlement payments paid by the Treasury to entitlement obligees on their entitlement obligations. And so when we take a look at the U.S., what I call true interest expense, you can't just look at interest, nominal interest expense on the debt. You have to look at the effective interest expense on the 100 to $200 trillion in entitlement obligations. Which right now are running at about two point seven trillion dollars per year, or call it sixty five percent of tax receipts just on their own. And so, what we've pointed out is that this U.S. true interest expense uh, is, which is your Treasury spending, and we've included some stimulus payments in there in addition to interest because that's been inflating GDP to help the receipts. If you look at true interest expense as a percent of tax receipts, it is still over one hundred percent. This is unprecedented. It was. True interest expense was like 65% back in 2016. And so as we talk about this rate hiking cycle, we talked about we've never seen a starting point with debt this high. We've never seen a starting point with deficits this high as percent of GDP. We've never seen the Fed tighten with true interest expense ahead of tax receipts because tax receipts are highly interest rate sensitive. Uh, when they raise rates, receipts are going to slow or fall. And interest expense is going to rise or accelerate. And so this problem is going to get worse. And what it leads to is, is if the U.S. can't even cover entitlements and interest and Treasury spending, either the Fed's going to print the difference or the Fed's not. And if the Fed doesn't print the difference, then you're going to see the U.S. government effectively crowd out global dollar markets around the world. You'll see the dollar rise. You'll see rates rise. You'll have a debt crisis where you'll see uh, risk assets fall and you'll see Treasury yields rise, kind of like what we saw in March of 2020 for about four or five days until the Fed came in with monster QE. So we're, we're For me, when we talk about this interest rate hike cycle, perhaps the most fascinating thing is that there is just de minimis recognition of where we are from a fiscal perspective as the reserve currency issuing U.S. and Western sovereigns more broadly have the same problem versus where we are at any other time in really the last hundred years. And so to me, this is really the elephant in the room that people just aren't spending enough time focused on. And it's interesting, right? We say, okay, this is the first global sovereign debt bubble in 100 years. How'd the last one work out? And the answer is, is there were six major industrial economies that had that were, were the biggest parties to that. You had US, UK, Germany, France, Japan, and Russia. Four of those six, two of those six hyperinflated, Russia and Germany. The other four significantly devalued their currencies, ultimately. France multiple times, the UK and US did it last as the biggest creditor and as the global reserve currency issuer, UK back then. But basically, currencies, you know, basically 
once you've kicked the problem upstairs to the sovereign debt level, there's nowhere else you can kick this problem upstairs. It has to come out of the currency. It has to come out of inflation. And if you choose to fight that inflation, it will come out of economic activity. And so to me, this fiscal per- perspective is it's the elephant in the room that virtually nobody's talking about yet. But I think we're going to be talking about it a lot more if the Fed keeps trying to raise rates. And it's why I think much more than one or two rate hikes are highly unlikely to happen. So how does that jive with what seems to be this growing acceptance of MMT? Right. Because I hear you. But you know, and, and one of the critics of MMT, and I always make the point that it's almost like you're half MMT now, right? They talk about how debt doesn't seem to matter because you can print dollars to cover it, but at the same time, they're not able to tax in a way to counter inflation, which is a key aspect of the of the modern monetary theory. How does MMT and maybe the adoption of it factor into that? Because it seems to me that's a way that even though you can't kick it up again, using your words, you can just keep on delaying it inevitably as long as the, the printer's there. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, the constraint on the system that you can't – the MMT folks, in my opinion, are right. You can delay it inevitably. Now, the MMT people, to their credit, the, the, will tell you the constraint on the system, like you said, is inflation. And this then gets us into where we are now, which is we did effectively MMT. We did effectively helicopter money, right, Fed-financed deficits over the last 18 months. And it's effectively printing money. And voila, we have 7.5% inflation. So now – like you said, you either have this is where things get tricky, and this I think is where the MMT the MMT proponents I think are naive as to the political realities, which are the one you just described, right? The, historically, it has just been their view is well, we'll just raise taxes to pull money back out of the system, and politically, this country can't get anything done politically, basically, and so that I think is politically naive. The other side is, is well, we can raise rates when we have to. Uh, that assumes a linear increase in inflation that doesn't go to to seven. Because now, to uh, I forget who I was reading, but they're making the point. It might have been at any rate. They're making the point that to curtail seven and a half percent inflation, you might need the Fed funds rate at four or five. Fed funds at four or five. Let's just say it's four. You throw you know U.S. average coupon of Treasuries. You know, barring costs for the government over time, pro forma at four would be, I don't know, five and a half, six percent average coupon on 30 trillion in debt. You know, now you're talking about pro forma, the interest being, you know, a trillion eight. Oh, by the way, that 2.7 trillion in entitlements that you owe the boomers, that ain't going away. That's going to keep growing at five to six percent CAGR, if not more, with inflation. You know, it's, it was, it, you know, those numbers were growing five or six percent CAGR before inflation was seven. Last year, they got a 5.9 percent cost of living increase, right? So the second problem in all of this within the MMT is from a political, I think, naivete standpoint is, is the start, you know, doing this with debt to GDP at 30 is very different than doing this with debt to GDP at 130. 
Because now you need to raise taxes, which politically you can't, or you need to raise rates, which raising rates to the level to get inflation back down will basically ensure that the United States cannot make both its payments on entitlements and interest without the Fed printing it. So you're going to need the Fed to print while you're raising rates, which, again, isn't going to fix the problem. And then thirdly, I think the other side of MMT, which again, mechanically, it works absolutely. We saw it drive inflation. But the third problem is, is you, it assumes a speed of reshoring of industrial capacity, or it, it ignores global supply chains, put it that way. And that, that is to say, if China was our friend, if China was the UK and they loved us and we always get along, we always agree on everything – then MMT and what it could do to supply chains wouldn't be a problem. But when the State Department is out actively picking a fight with with our biggest creditor, our biggest supplier, China, and we're doing MMT, which China doesn't, you know, if you're a creditor, it doesn't exactly like, now you're going to start to see supply chain problems. And you've seen signs that China is actually weaponizing the supply chains. And so now that inflation is going to get worse, not better. And the the rates that the U.S. has to raise them to fight that inflation are being higher, not lower. And so we're right now, I think, sort of in between these two trapezes of letting go of this trapeze of, hey, you know, we can MMT and and it's not a problem. We'll raise rates when it's time. I, we've let go of that one. And that we're, we're reaching for this trapeze of, well, don't worry. We'll just raise rates seven times. And like no one's in between. No one's thinking about this bigger fiscal picture, which is an unprecedentedly bad position. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point. You know, the Reg FD thing was a huge boon to our business. I mean, part of the thing that drove back way back in the day in the late 90s, Part of what drove us to be as, as deep and as early on, on the fundamental bottoms-up supply chain survey work, building the mosaic, right, sort of the classic building the research mosaic, was, you know, we had buy recommendations in 98, 99 on the single worst performing stocks in the S&P 500, and, and management's flat out lied to us, right? So you go back in time to the mid to late 90s, and, you know, I remember as a salesperson and analyst back then, sort of a, a good call was, hey, you know, we just talked to the CFO of XYZ Corp, and here's how the quarter's going, and they think this is happening, this and that. And what we found as the economy slowed in the late 90s, particularly, we were doing a lot of industrial and cyclicals. And if you remember, the really, the U.S. industrial economy went into a recession by 97, 98 with, with the global emerging markets. What we found was that, surprisingly enough, if you give management companies a whole bunch of stock as their incentive comp, then and, – and so if, if, if they're incented to make the stock go up, uh, they're not going to tell you bad news that makes the stock go down in a timely manner, right? So – you know, they we we had we we had to adapt to that with this survey work. And you had Reg FD, which tried to address this issue. Ironically enough, it was as we found with Enron and as we found with WorldCom and some others. You know, Reg FD initially was just ensuring that that managements gave all investors the same fraudulent financial statements at the same time. Ironically, when I, I, I do think all else equal, some of the flows of ETFs, the ease of it, the spread of it, probably make macro more important. All else equal, I you know I think it speaks to that macro sector liquidity passive dynamic that Michael was referring to earlier. So I guess on net, I would I would probably agree with that assessment. Yeah, I think probably the biggest theme, and I, I think this is the most important theme in macro in the world right now, is 
global central banks and foreign investors more broadly have stopped buying enough treasury bonds to finance U.S. deficits. U.S. deficits have risen non-linearly and, and foreign and international buying of treasuries have largely flattened out for the last seven or eight years. And in practical terms, what this suggests is that for the first time in decades, investors, U.S. deficits actually matter again. U.S. debt actually matters again. And if you look at the United States and what the Fed is doing, what the U.S. economy, given its its primacy as, as a global reserve currency issuer, what it means practically is we need to look at, at the U.S. from a balance of payment. And, and so it's fascinating, right, as, as generals always fight the last war. And so as the saying goes, my, I'm told that in the 60s and 70s, every major bank on Wall Street had at least one U.S. balance of payments analyst. And now there's no such position. And it's ironic because it might be one of the most important positions to have. Then how does that tie into your question about flows and what to do is, is it turns into this liquidity metric, which is if the Fed is financing enough U.S. deficits, if the Fed's doing QE, if the Fed is injecting liquidity, you're going to be seeing a weaker dollar. You're going to be seeing increasing inflation. You're going to be seeing increasing U.S. asset prices. You're going to be seeing accelerating negative real interest rates. And there's a whole bunch of things you can play right off of that. Right? I mean, it's, it's emerging markets. It's, it's you know, if, if the Fed's going to increasing negative real interest rates, it's good for duration, right? So, you know, big tech had benefited from that for a period in the cycle. Ultimately, it can be really good for commodities, as we've seen. It can be good for Bitcoin, be good for gold. And the flip side of it is as long as as foreign investors are, are not buying uh, enough treasuries and the deficits are continuing to increase, given the, the primacy, the centrality of the dollar and the euro dollar system, anytime the Fed's not doing enough, it's going to be dollar strength. It's going to be global economic softness. It's going to be sort of this lack of growth that has been good for tech. And, and actually, so I said big tech before from the negative interest rate side, but really the negative interest rates when the Fed's doing something, you really almost rather be in commodities because commodities in value because you're getting real growth versus a low growth environment when the Fed's not doing it. They're not financing enough deficits with printed money. Dollars strong, you're likely to see a flatter curve. You're likely to see uh, a premium paid for for tech. So there's there's a number of different themes you can play off of that. That you know historically over the last eight years, Fed not doing enough is really good for the long end of the curve. You know that relationship began to break down in March of 2020 for the first time. It's a little bit of a separate discussion, but it ties into sort of this process of a slow moving but accelerating US fiscal crisis balance payments crisis you know we can touch on if you'd like but it's that's to me this this theme this look at the US through a balance of payments lens and then apply that to the I think it's been a very useful lens and it's 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 allowed good sector choices over the last several years yeah, so the 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 total factor productivity question, I don't factor that in. I, I do acknowledge that the U.S. has clearly had better uh, productivity than many debt productivity than, than many parts of the world. You know, I don't know how that is fully all calculated and fully loaded. And I don't I can't imagine it would be adjusted for geopolitical factors, right, that weren't important 
20 years ago when the U.S. was a unipolar power, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, but are increasingly becoming important. What I mean by that is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the United States in 2011 said, the biggest threat to the United States is, is not weapons of mass destruction. It's not climate change. It's not terror. It's the United States' own debt and the fact that we've offshored our production. That, you know, he said, he's, and I quote, we are borrowing money from China to build weapons to face down China. And so what I mean by all that is, is that in a vacuum, U.S. total pro factor productivity has clearly been better, a number of different reasons. I think there are starting to be geopolitical dynamics where it makes less sense for the marginal dollar for China and others to deploy that, in particular China, the biggest creditor of the whole system, to deploy that to the United States. It makes less sense for the Germans to, at least part of Germany, to deploy that to the United States as the U.S. is actively trying to um, hurt Germany's uh, energy policy via Nord Stream 2 sanctions, et cetera. And so there's, I think, number one, an, an angle to that. But then I think there's also another angle where creditors are looking at this system and seeing two things. One, the geological reality of peak cheap oil, where it's not that we're running out of oil and gas and commodities, but it is clearly getting much more expensive. We're having to run harder and spend more just to find higher cost supplies of, of energy. I think we've seen this in spades develop over the last 18 months around the world, right? So if you are, if you are a creditor region that imports energy like China, like Japan, like Europe, and you're seeing a peak cheap commodity energy dynamic suggesting that your Treasury bills, treasury bonds, which are, you know, your, your paper is going to buy you less of this stuff in the future. And remember, all that stuff's priced or used to be priced in dollars, right? So you know you're going to run out of dollars if you put it all in paper to start with. But then you also look, go back to 08. I think up until 08, and this I think speaks to the strategy of some of these moves to diversify from the dollar. But I think up until 08, global consensus was that, you know, push comes to shove, the Americans will manage the dollar for the good of the world. They will put themselves in pain and hurt their domestic economy to keep to manage the dollar as, as a global utility, because that's what we did under Volcker from 79 to 82. The reality was we showed the world in 08 was that when push comes to shove, we will print the money and hand it out to ourselves and the rest of the world you know, can suffer the consequences, right? It's our currency, it's your problem. I think at that moment in time, the world Again, specifically the Chinese, the Russians, to a lesser extent, the Europeans, lesser extent, still the Japanese, began looking at these, these entitlements, which were off, all, all off balance. You know, they were a lot like the AIG, what AIG did, right? AIG wrote a bunch of insurance policies on something they thought could never happen. The home prices could never fall nationally. And then they did. And they didn't have the capital and, and, and they needed to print the, you know, they needed the Fed to print the money to bail them out. Well, in the same way, the United States government over the last 80 years has written an insurance policy on the U.S. baby boomers, but <laughs> they, for some reason, also never reserved enough. So this stuff was all held off balance sheet. It is now coming on balance sheet as the boomers retire. And so I think the world after 08 said, oh, my God, if they printed for all that, they're going to print all these dollars to pay for these boomers. And when they do that, if oil and gas and commodities are still priced only in dollars and we have this peak cheap oil dynamic, I can't put my money in the paper. I cannot reserve, I cannot reserve all of my my reserves in paper, in debt, in low rate debt, because it's not going to buy me enough and I'm going to have a currency crisis. And so I think 
when you say the total factor productivity, I think is something they look at. But I, de facto, if we look back to 2013, global central banks uh, have bought $260 billion worth of physical gold and only $80 billion net of U.S. treasuries over that same time frame. And so there's been, I think, this this recognition, and, and it's fascinating when I tell that statistic to most people, they're blown away by that. Like since 2013, foreign official accounts have bought three x more physical gold than they have than they have treasury bonds. I think what they're watching, I think we're seeing a shift from sort of this total factor productivity to geological reality, geopolitical reality, basically a de-dollarization of global reserves. And, and I think that's showing up in not enough treasury demand, which then in turn shows up in Fed needs to buy more, which then shows up as CPI inflation, not so transitory. I'm going to ask a very simple question because I, I'm told this all the time on Twitter, Luke, in the context of everything you just said. Does Bitcoin solve this? <laughs> right, because this is this is sort of the the, the and, and you lay it out in a way, way that makes it hard to not be bullish on cryptocurrencies or and Bitcoin in particular. I don't I don't disagree with anything you're saying, but I do wonder if the solution is monetary as opposed to legal. Right, it's like in other words, if you had a constitutional amendment that said that you could not have your debt to GDP increase to a certain number, right, and that would be an immutable percentage. It seems to me that that's really how you prevent the system from constantly releveraging. Yeah, I think if, if the, the fix to this is remarkably simple. It's politically extraordinarily difficult, but if the fix is so simple, and if we go back to the Bretton Woods conference, there were two proposals, right? The United States wanted the dollar to be central to the system, pegged the gold at $35 an ounce, and then every other currency was pegged to the dollar. And John Maynard Keynes, it's it's ironic that we are consistently running this quote unquote Keynesian Keynesian economics, right? Keynes proposed that Bretton Woods was we should settle international trade in a neutral reserve asset called the Bancor. And so these imbalances will not be allowed to build up. If you import too much stuff, you're gonna have to settle in Bancor. As you have to print more currency to buy Bancor to settle, your currency is going to weaken against Bancor, against the producers. And it would be a, a stabilizing, a naturally stabilizing system. So we wouldn't end up with these imbalances that are just mind boggling now, right? So Keynesian was actually in favor of a neutral reserve asset that floats in price in every currency. And so if we fast forward, right, instead, we, of course, we pay gold to fiat. That didn't work. Then we effectively pegged fiat, pseudo pegged, I've called it, we pegged, once that peg broke, the gold fiat peg, we pseudo pegged fiat, the dollar, to oil. If you look from 1973 to 05, so 30 plus years, the dollar traded between $15 and $30 a barrel. When it got near 30, the Fed hiked. When it got to 15, the Fed cut. But there was effectively, oil was kept as good as gold for oil, it, the dollar trading in a range of oil. And then due to geological reality, due to China, due to a number of factors, the wars, that peg broke circa 2000. Three, four, right? Oil takes off 40, 50, on, on its way to 150. And so now we're sort of, I would argue, since 0304, been operating in this sort of non system of a non system. And so the fix, you know, we tried pegging fiat to gold, and eh, we tried pegging fiat to oil. And eh, the fix is you peg oil to gold. So at a, at a much higher rate, right? You say gold is worth. 500 100 barrels an ounce, 1,000 barrels an ounce. And if you want to buy energy, if you import energy, you have to you will have to settle that energy 
in gold at that ratio. And and that would be a version of, of the Keynes Bancor that he talked to. And what's interesting to me about Bitcoin is that that effectively is what Bitcoin does, right? With an adjustment, but also this hard cap of, look, there's 21 million units and the price will float in every currency and it costs a certain amount of energy to make a Bitcoin, right? So it's effectively tied to energy, but there is the technology angle of, hey, if, if, you, can, if you can produce Bitcoin more efficiently on the technology side, you get an advantage. If you can produce more energy efficiently, you get an advantage. You're incenting sort of all the right behaviors in terms of trade, in terms of green, in terms of balancing the system. But some people don't like to compete on fair terms. So that's why it's so politically difficult. But I, I do think the fix is a neutral reserve asset that floats in all currencies used as a settlement mechanism and that has a tie to energy. Whether that is gold, whether that is Bitcoin, I think the list gets really short after that in terms of what it could be. Some say, hey, maybe SDR bonds. You'd need a lot more progress between here and there. You'd need everyone to agree it ain't happening in my view. But but that's, that's, I think, a way to think about it. I don't know that's a D way, but I think it's a way to think about it. Yeah, the simplistic side of gold to oil. I mean, those are sort of your, you know, if it was Bitcoin, I mean, there's sort of a de facto tie to electricity, right? So that could, you know, it sort of takes care of itself, right? Like there's, it's, it doesn't necessarily need to be that explicit tie. It just needs to be Bitcoin because then there's the, the implied tie is through the efficiency of mining or the efficiency of electricity, the cheapness of electricity generation. You know, I think you can take it in a direction too with Bitcoin of some national defense related stuff, right? Where if if we went to a Bitcoin settlement, you would effectively be putting a lot of pressure on China, right? I, I've gotten increasingly the sense that part of the reason why China kicked the Bitcoin miners out of China was not because they didn't want the competition, or at least not the primary reason. The primary reason is they have a power problem and they have a power problem because they have a water problem. And so if you say, okay, we're going to move to Bitcoin, right? If, if the U.S. were to do that as a settlement asset, then suddenly the U.S. has got plenty of water, got plenty of power. China doesn't have plenty of water. It would be a way to take advantage back against China in a fight we are losing, uh, in a competition we are losing, and in a fight and competition we have been not just losing, but giving away for the past 20 to 25 years. So you know, it's it's interesting. It's nuanced. It's it's probably not going to happen until uh, things get a lot worse, were it to happen at all. But I think it's an interesting dynamic to think about. I've heard you talk, Luke, about water as an investment, right? I've heard you mention the PHO ETF in a media appearance. I'm curious, and maybe the audience will be too here, why, why bring up water in that conversation? I know it sounds kind of maybe obvious once you explain it, but but kind of talk through sort of your thesis on the importance of of that. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it's, and I'm going to mess this up because I'm, I'm not a power engineer, but, you know, the short version of it is you've got baseload power and you've, you know, swing power for your grid and some portion of China's baseload power is hydro. And so that takes, obviously, that requires a certain amount of water. You don't have enough water. You don't have enough waterfalls. The turbines aren't spinning. You start having power problems that you start making up elsewhere around the grid. 
Nuclear requires gobs of water. Coal requires gobs of water. And China's got a water problem. They've, they've been talking about it for a long time. More interestingly, there's been some really good work done by a gentleman named Gopal Reddy. You can find uh, a report that he put out publicly late last year online. There was another gentleman, former British uh, member of parliament, who did some work on it, whose name escapes me, uh, in 2018. The Chinese government itself was talking about these problems in 2013, 2011. The punchline is that if China has a water problem, it has a power problem. And so when we looked around last fall and we started seeing, seeing headlines like China restricting Apple's ability to produce iPads and iPhones in China for the first time in decades due to power curtailments, the narrative was that it was around the environment. Maybe that's the case. In my experience, China doesn't care a whole lot about the environment. And so between that and other dynamics, there were signs that this was actually this these power curtailments were less about the environment and more about water availability, having manifesting as power availability. And that that I've heard again from multiple credible sources that tied into the Bitcoin mining decision as well. Because if you have power problems, are you going to shut off Bitcoin miners? Or are you going to shut off Apple? The answer is all day, every day, and twice on Sundays, you shut off the Bitcoin miners. They still have to shut off Apple a bit. But the point then is, is that that water issue is endemic on some level. Of course, it can change depending on they get a lot of rain, they don't, etc. But some of it is very, very structural in that they have been overdrawing on major aquifers for decades and decades. And when when you say, well, you know, overdrawing on an aquifer, the issue is that these things to recharge an aquifer, the time is measured in thousands of years. It's not like they can just sort of ease it and it'll fill right back up. So if the issue for the power curtailments is water, as seems to possibly be the case, then having a reserve currency that requires a lot, a reserve asset, a neutral reserve asset that requires a lot of incremental power to keep going favors the nation that has a lot of incremental power and water to spare relative to the one that doesn't. And that's sort of how I've thought about it. Yeah, very, very interesting. Okay, so so there, there's something that's been bothering me for the last year and a half or so, but I, I, you know, you've always heard that gold does well in negative real rate environments, right? Historically, that's been the case. Gold tends to perform when inflation is higher than interest rates. That has not been the case, right? Gold has done okay, but it hasn't been sort of, I think, as strong a performer as that narrative would have you believe. I am curious because I've heard you talk about gold and being bullish on gold. Why do you think that is that at, at a juncture where you have such incredible negative real rates, and obviously that's lessened quite a bit the last several weeks, but why hasn't gold been a, a better performer in that period? Yeah, there's a great meme that goes around. It was, you know, I, I predicted negative real rate, you know, oh, you must have made a bunch of money. And, you know, no, I owned gold. And it's that one hit hard because that was me, right? A year, year ago, I was saying real rates are going to at least negative five and probably lower. And People were looking at me like I was nuts and dead right. And I was wrong for the right reason as it relates to gold, right? Gold was very disappointing. I think a couple factors were at work. I think Bitcoin did take a lot of share. You know, to me, it was it was fascinating. I had a dinner who was introduced to one of the biggest physical gold traders in the world. And we met in New York back in fall of 2017 when Bitcoin was doing its first like run through 10,000, ultimately peaking at 18 or 19,000, whenever it was before falling back. But but he and I were having a drink, and I had been 
thinking about what Bitcoin was doing as simply what gold would be doing if it did not have the gigantic unallocated paper gold market attached to it centered in London. And we were sitting there, we started talking about it and unsolicited, he said that to me. Bitcoin is just doing what gold would be doing if it didn't have the massive unallocated paper gold market attached to it in London. And so I think that's sort of, I think that's sort of thing number one. I think Bitcoin did exactly what we would expect gold to do in a uh, negative interest rate environment like we saw. And, And I think the other thing too is the other reason I don't think gold has performed has been what I alluded to earlier on in our conversation, which is there's just very little recognition for the U.S. fiscal position. People believe that that was a one-time thing, what we saw with COVID, and don't worry, they're going to raise rates seven times, and you don't want to own gold when they raise rates seven times. And so there is very little recognition that the U.S.'s true interest expense is more than 100% of tax receipts with tax receipts running uh, up year over year at the highest rate in 40 years and with inflation running at the highest rate in 40 years. And so I think if you went to people regarding gold and said, hey, U.S. real rates are going to be negative 10 for the next five years at least, and they might bottom at negative 20. Do you want to own gold? I think the answer is like, oh my God, yeah, I need to own gold. And gold does really well. And so I think there is, I think it's a combination of some lost share from from Bitcoin, some, a lot of lost share from Bitcoin. I think it's been a combination of the impact of the large unallocated paper gold market that probably cushioned what would otherwise have shown up as gold price increases, but instead manifested as paper gold leverage increases. But there's no visibility on exactly how much paper gold, unallocated paper gold leverage there is. And then I think the third thing is just, an un, uh, I don't think investors understand how negative rates are going to have to be for how long. I think they think this is just like every other cycle for the last 40, 50 years. And as we talked to earlier, that couldn't be further from the truth. And so I think where you then say is, all right, well, as they realize that this cycle is going to be much different than the last 40, 50 years, I think it's going to be really good for gold. Now, it, one of the things that's been interesting in this context to me over the last month or so, and I tweeted about this last week, has been how well gold and to a lesser extent Bitcoin have traded given what real rates have done over the last month. I mean, gold should be down three, four, 500 points and it's up. And so, you know, is that just because we're just waiting for it to, to tank on rising real rates? Maybe. But there's also a sovereign buyer. There was a great article by Eddie Van Vanderbilt on Bloomberg last week. There's apparently a, a sovereign whale that's been buying gold very, very steadily under 1800 bucks. Every time it goes under 1800 it's there with a bit. And that makes sense to me because it would, given what we described with this fiscal situation, again, we haven't seen this in, in, in the developed market in 100 years. If rates get too high, the U.S. government cannot make ends meet just on its true interest expense without the Fed printing, let alone the defense budget at $800 billion, which is another almost 40% or 20% of tax receipts, excuse me. They're not cutting defense with what's going on with Russia and China. And then everything else the U.S. government does, right? So I think those three things, it's Bitcoin, the unallocated market, and this, I think, unappreciation of the U.S. fiscal situation or the reason why gold has been an absolute thorn in in, in my side, given what real rates have done. And, and I think a lot of other people's on too, unfortunately. Yeah, it, it always goes back to that line I keep using, right? It's it, when it comes to investing, it's it's hard to know if you're wrong or just early. Right. Except with hindsight and the gold thesis, I, I do agree with that. I think there's probably uh, unequivocally a longer term case for that. It's not from the fact that it's 
it's among a few amount of uh, investments that behave risk off, right? That benefit from volatility in equities. But uh, yeah, we've been hearing a lot on these spaces that gold would probably be the, the surprise performer this year. So be uh, interesting to see how it plays out. Again, everybody that's here, please make sure you follow Luke Roman. Check out his research. He's got also a great YouTube channel. He's got some great market thoughts and commentary. Luke, this has been a real pleasure. I'm glad we connected this way for the hour. And uh, everybody that's been here, again, I try to do these spaces every day. Please make sure you join next time tomorrow. And everybody enjoy the rest of your day. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.